John Calvin's Commentary on Psalms Psalm 14 Verse 1 The fool is said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that does good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek after God. They are all gone aside. They are together become filthy. There is none that does good, no, not one. Psalm 14, Commentary by John Calvin In the beginning, a psalmist describes the wicked contempt of God, into which almost the whole people had broken forth. To give the greater weight to his complaint, he represents God himself as uttering it. Afterwards, he comforts himself and others with the hope of a remedy, which he assures himself God will very soon provide. Although in the meantime he groans and feels deep distress at the disorder which he beholds. Verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Many of the Jews are of opinion that in this psalm there is given forth a prediction concerning the future oppression of their nation, as if David, by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, bewailed the afflicted condition of the church of God under the tyranny of the Gentiles. They therefore refer what is here spoken to the dispersed condition in which we see them at the present day, as if they were that precious heritage of God which the wild beasts devour. But it is very apparent that in wishing to cover the disgrace of their nation they rest and apply to the Gentiles without any just ground what is said concerning the perverse children of Abraham. We cannot certainly find a better qualified interpreter than the Apostle Paul, and he applies his psalm expressly to the people who lived under the law. Romans 3 verse 19 Besides, Although we had not the testimony of this apostle, the structure of this psalm very clearly shows that David means rather the domestic tyrants and enemies of the faithful than foreign ones, a point in which it is very necessary for us to understand. We know that it is a temptation which pains us exceedingly to see wickedness breaking forth and prevailing in the midst of the church. The good and the simple unrighteously afflicted, while the wicked cruelly domineer according to their pleasure. This sad spectacle almost completely disheartens us, and therefore we have much need to be fortified from the example which David here sets before us, so that in the midst of the greatest desolations which we behold in the church, we may comfort ourselves with this assurance that God will finally deliver her from them. I have no doubt that there is here described the disordered and desolate state of Judea, which Saul introduced when he began to rage openly. Then, as if the remembrance of God had been extinguished from the minds of men, all piety had vanished, and with respect to integrity or uprightness among men there was just as little of it as of godliness. Defoe has said, is a Hebrew word, Nabal, signifies not only a fool, but also a perverse, vile, and contemptible person. It would not have been unsuitable to have translated it so in this place. Yet I am content to follow the more generally received interpretation, which is that all profane persons who have cast off all fear of God, 
and abandon themselves to iniquity, are convicted of madness. David does not bring against his enemies a charge of common foolishness, but rather inveighs against the folly and insane hardihood of those whom the world accounts eminent for their wisdom. We commonly see that those who, in the estimation both of themselves and of others, highly excel in sagacity and wisdom, employ their cunning and laying snares, and exercise the ingenuity of their minds in despising and mocking God. It is, therefore, important for us in the first place to know that however much the world applaud these crafty and scoffing characters, who allow themselves to indulge to any extent in wickedness, yet the Holy Spirit condemns them as being fools, for there is no stupidity more brutish than forgetfulness of God. We ought, however, at the same time carefully to mark the evidence on which the psalmist comes to the conclusion that they have cast off all sense of religion. And it is this, that they have overthrown all order, so that they no longer make any distinction between right and wrong, and have no regard for honesty nor love of humanity. David, therefore, does not speak of the hidden affection of the heart of the wicked, except in so far as they discover themselves by their external actions. The import of his language is, How does it come to pass that these men indulge themselves in their lusts so boldly and so outrageously that they pay no regard to their righteousness or equity? In short, that they madly rush into every kind of wickedness. If it is not because they have shaken off all sense of religion, and extinguish as far as they can all remembrance of God from their minds? When persons retain in their heart any sense of religion, they must necessarily have some modesty, and be in some measure restrained and prevented from entirely disregarding the dictates of their conscience. From this it follows, that when the ungodly allow themselves to follow their own inclinations, so obstinately and audaciously as they are here represented as doing, without any sense of shame. It is an evidence that they have cast off all fear of God. The psalmist says that they speak in their heart. They may not utter this detestable blasphemy, there is no God, with their mouths, but the unbridled licentiousness of their life loudly and distinctly declares that in their hearts which are destitute of all godliness, they soothingly sing to themselves this song. Not that they maintain, by drawn-out arguments or formal syllogisms, as they term them, that there is no God, for to render them so much the more inexcusable, God from time to time causes even the most wicked of men to feel secret pangs of conscience, that they may be compelled to acknowledge his majesty and sovereign power. But whatever right knowledge God instills into them, they partly stifle it by their malice against him, and partly corrupt it until religion in them becomes torpid, and at last, dead. They may not plainly deny the existence of a God, but they imagine him to be shut up in heaven, and divested of his righteousness and power. And this is just a fashion an idol in the room of God, as if the time would never come when they will have to appear before him in judgment. They endeavor, in all the transactions and concerns of their life, to remove him to the greatest distance, 
and to efface from their minds all apprehensions of his majesty. And when God is dragged from his throne and divested of his character as judge, impiety has come to its utmost height. And therefore we must conclude that David has most certainly spoken according to truth in declaring that those who give themselves liberty to commit all manner of wickedness, in a flattering hope of escaping with impunity, denying their heart to Darius a God. It's a 53rd Psalm, with the exception of a few words which are altered in it, is just a repetition of this Psalm. I will show in the proper places as we proceed the difference which there is between the two Psalms. David here complains that they have done abominable work. But for the word work, the term there employed is iniquity. It should be observed that David does not speak of one work or two, but as he has said that they have perverted or corrupted all lawful order. So now he adds that they have so polluted their whole life as to make it abominable. And the proof of this which he adduces is that they have no regard to uprightness in their dealings with one another, but have forgotten all humanity and all beneficence towards their fellow creatures. Verses 2 and 3 Jehovah looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see whether there were any that did understand and seek after God. Every one of them has gone aside. They have altogether become putrid or rotten. There is none that does good, not even one. Verse 2, Jehovah looked down from heaven. God himself is here introduced as speaking on the subject of human depravity. And this renders the discourse of David more emphatic than if he had pronounced a sentence in his own person. When God is exhibited to us as sitting on a throne to take cognizance of the conduct of men, unless we are stupefied in an extraordinary degree, his majesty must strike us with terror. The effect of the habit of sinning is that men grow hardened in their sins and discern nothing as if they were enveloped in thick darkness. David, therefore to teach them that they gain nothing by flattering to deceive in themselves as they do, when wickedness reigns in the world with impunity, testifies that God looks down from heaven and casts his eyes on all sides for the purpose of knowing what is done among men. God, it is true, has no need to make inquisition or search, but when he compares himself to an earthly judge, it is an adaptation to our limited capacity and to enable us gradually to form some apprehension of a secret providence which our reason cannot all at once comprehend. Would to God that this manner of speaking had the effect of teaching us to summon ourselves before his tribunal, and that while the world are flattering themselves and the reprobate are trying to bury their sins in forgetfulness by their want of thought, hypocrisy, or shamelessness, and are blinded in their obstinacy of this they were intoxicated, we might be led to shake off all indifference and stupidity by reflecting on this truth, that God, notwithstanding, looks down from his high throne in heaven and beholds what is going on here below, to see if there were any that did understand. As the whole economy of a good and righteous life depends upon our being governed and directed by the light of understanding, David has justly taught us in the beginning of the psalm that folly is a root of all wickedness. 
And in this clause, he also very justly declares that the commencement of integrity and uprightness of life consists in an enlightened and sound mind. But as the greater part misapply their intellectual powers to deceitful purposes, David immediately after defines in one word what true understanding is, namely, that it consists in seeking after God, by which he means that unless men devote themselves wholly to God, their life cannot be well ordered. Some understand the word, maskil, which we translated, that did not understand, in too restricted a sense, whereas David declares that the reprobate are utterly destitute of all reason and judgment. Every one of them has gone aside. Some translate the word sar, which is here used to stink, as if the reading were every one of them emits an offensive odor, that it may correspond in meaning with the verb in the next clause, which in Hebrew signifies to become putrid or rotten. But there is no necessity for explaining the two words in the same way as if the same thing were repeated twice. The interpretation is more appropriate, which supposes that men are here condemned, is guilty of a detestable revolt, inasmuch as they are estranged from God, or have departed far from him, and that afterwards there is pointed out the disgusting corruption or putrid sense of their whole life, as if nothing could proceed from apostates but what smells rank of rottenness and infection. The Hebrew word, sar, is almost universally taken in this sense. In the 51st Psalm, the word sag is used which signifies the same thing. In short, David declares that all men are so carried away by their capricious lusts that nothing is to be found either of purity or integrity in their whole life. This, therefore, is defection so complete that it extinguishes all godliness. Besides, David here not only censors a portion of the people, but pronounces them all to be equally involved in the same condemnation. This was, indeed, a prodigy well fitted to excite abhorrence that all the children of Abraham, whom God had chosen to be his peculiar people, were so corrupt from the least to the greatest. But it might be asked, how David makes no exception, how he declares that not a righteous person remains, not even one, when, nevertheless, he informs us a little after that the born afflicted put their trust in God. Again, it might be asked, if all were wicked, who was that Israel whose future redemption he celebrates in the end of the psalm? Nay, as he himself was one of the body of that people, why does he not at least accept himself? I answer, it is against the carnal and degenerate body of the Israelitish nation that he here invades, and the small number constituting the seed which God had set apart for himself is not included among them. This is the reason why Paul, in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, verse 10, extends a sentence to all mankind. David, it is true, deplores the disordered and deathless state of manners under the reign of Saul. At the same time, however, he doubtless makes a comparison between the children of God and all who have not been regenerated by the Spirit, but are carried away according to the inclinations of their flesh. Some give a different explanation, maintaining that Paul, by quoting the testimony of David, did not understand him as meaning that men are naturally depraved and corrupt, and that the truth which David intended to teach us, that the rulers and the more distinguished of the people were wicked, 
and that therefore it was not surprising to behold unrighteousness and wickedness prevailing so generally in the world. This answer is far from being satisfactory. The subject which Paul there reasons upon is not what is the character of the greater part of men, but what is the character of all who are led and governed by their own corrupt nature. It is, therefore, to be observed that when David places himself in a small remnant of the godly on one side and puts on the other the body of the people, in general, this implies that there is a manifest difference between the children of God who are created anew by his Spirit and all the posterity of Adam, in whom corruption and depravity exercise dominion. Whence it follows that all of us, when we are born, bring with us from our mother's womb this folly and filthiness manifested in the whole life, which David here describes, and that we continue such until God makes us new creatures by his mysterious grace.